Hello Phoenixes and welcome at the PAVE podcast created for the professional working to end the violence against women and children. I'm Marianne, your host, and today I'm honored to talk with Alessandra Pounds. Alessandra has been working in the field of domestic violence for 20 years and has covered many areas of expertise. She has advocated and worked for victims of domestic violence as a shelter worker, psychologist, researcher, manager, trainer, and in fund and conscience raising at the local, provincial, regional, national, and European level. She founded and ran the first center in Italy working with perpetrators, namely the Center for Abusive Men, and set up the National Italian Network of Work with Perpetrators. Additionally, Alessandra has published articles and books like Shifting Power, How to Recognize and Overcome Psychologically Abusive Relationships. She is the Executive Director of Work with Perpetrators. The European Network for the Work with Perpetrators of Domestic Violence is a membership association of organizations directly or indirectly working with people who perpetrate violence in close relationships. The main focus of WWP is violence perpetrated by men against women and children. The overall mission of WWP is to prevent violence in close relationships as a gender-based phenomenon and to foster gender equality. More specifically, the mission of WWP is to improve the safety of women and their children and others at risk from violence in close relationships through the promotion of effective work with those who perpetrate this violence. Today we will discuss why WWP focuses on perpetrators of violence, why perpetrators don't see themselves as a perpetrator, the difference within Europe regarding to perpetrator programs, why working with perpetrators makes you less helpless, and how we can change the judicial system. You can find the show notes, links and references at www.alianaloyga.com. But because my name is quite difficult, you can also go to pavepodcast.com if you go to the same website. Let's get started. Thank you so much for being a guest on the show. Please, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself? Um, maybe a little bit about your work and uh, life and what you do now. Um, well, thank you so much for having me. It's a great pleasure to be here. It's my first podcast, so I'm very excited. <laughs> um, I have been working in the field of domestic violence for the past uh, 30 years. I started out at uh, a women's shelter. Um, I have um, uh, a major in psychology, so I started working as a, a shelter worker and um, I set up um, one of the first uh, women's centers and shelters in Italy. And I worked there for 15 years. Uh, in the meantime, I also um, continued studying. I got a PhD in <clears throat> history of women writers uh, that was one of the first feminist PhD programs in Italy. And after 15 years, well, a little bit less, I started um, reflecting on starting some perpetrator programs in, uh, in Italy. And uh, so uh, in 2008, we started a first experimental perpetrator program that then sort of uh, was um, founded as an association in 2009 uh, in Italy, in Florence. Um, at the same time, I started also networking and working with the European context and with um, the, there was a European network that was uh, uh, working on guidelines that we used to set up the program in Italy. 
And so for, for the past um, years, from 2009 till now, I was also involved uh, in the setup of uh, the European network. Um, I was a board member for since the creation. We are one of the founder members of the European network. And since January, I have started working for the network as executive director. Can you tell a bit more about who founded Work With Perpetrators? Okay, so Work With Perpetrators started out as an informal network uh, based on uh, collaboration uh, of different organizations uh, and uh, Daphne projects, so European-funded projects. Uh, the first project was on creating a European network and guidelines. So that's sort of been pretty much the core founding uh, movement of WWP. Um, in the course of the years, uh, it became necessary to formalize the structure of the organization. So in 2014, the organization was formally founded and um, and it now is composed of 51 members uh, from 26 uh, European countries, European and some non-EU uh, countries. Um, and the, the aim of the network has always been that of um, working on guidelines and standards um, ever since the um, uh, the Istanbul Convention came into force, and I don't know if sort of we need to say a little bit more what the Istanbul Convention is. Um, we have also tried to uh, promote the Istanbul Convention and include it in our, um, in our standards and in our guidelines. At the same time, we believe um, that uh, the collaboration and uh, exchange of good practice among European countries is um, uh, a really, really important aspect of the work we do. So we have an annual meeting in which we all uh, come together in different parts of Europe and we uh, exchange practices. We have usually a theme that we uh, talk about. We try and figure out what uh, is most important to our members and we try to collectively contribute to uh, making the work that we do better. We also have a yearly study visit. Uh, each year a country hosts a, a study visit and uh, seven members come from the other countries and have the opportunity of spending two full days uh, getting to know another program and uh, um, getting to know the country. It has it has it is an, an amazing experience and um, it's um, uh, I think we have been doing some really really good uh, work. I'm also particularly excited of working with a network because I think it's worldwide a unique experience. Uh, there is not a network that has within it such diverse experiences and such diversity also culturally uh, on such a wide scale because Europe has um, an amazing mix of um, different countries and cultures coming together. Uh, much less a uniform than, for example, a network in Canada or a network in the States, because they're actually really different cultures coming together. Not only that, so not only we're unique because they're different cultures and countries coming together, but we're also unique because there are not very many national networks, even at a national level. 
So I would say that worldwide is this is an amazing experience, and I think that the work that can come out of what we are trying to build um, can really foster perpetrator programs throughout the world. Mm. Just curious, why do you focus on perpetrators? Because uh, I find it very interesting, perpetrators, yeah. the psychology behind it. But why does the organization focus on perpetrators? That's a very good question. Um, as I said, and as actually is also the history of the network, my personal and uh, professional uh, histories uh, collide. Um, I started working with victims, and the focus of the network is the safety and well-being of victims. So that's uh, our departure point. Um, and we believe that um, the priority is the support uh, to victim and services for victims. Uh, and we also believe that although we work with perpetrators, it's not as if we think that there's a priority on the work with victims. Uh, with perpetrators. We think the priority should always lie with the victims because we don't think that they should ever be put on the same level. However, uh, we have uh, developed uh, a culture or we are immersed in a culture that uh, does not pose adequate responsibility on who is committing the violence. So working with perpetrators is a way of trying to hold men and society at large accountable for the violence that men are perpetrating. So it's putting uh, who commits the violence on center stage in terms of trying to take collective social responsibility for that because obviously it's not uh, perpetrator programs in isolation that can solve the problem of violence against women, but uh, with a collective effort socially and culturally of looking at male responsibility and holding men accountable for their actions and behaviors that we can really start to see a shift and change. Well, in the media you see that men are held accountable, um, especially nowadays. Do you, can you use it um, in the organization as well? Well, I, I don't know if I agree with that. I don't find that men are held particularly accountable in the media. What we see in the media are, at least in Italy, I'm, I'm not sure about uh, all countries, uh, but it seems to be sort of a widespread uh, tendency. Mm -hmm. uh, what we see is extreme cases of deranged uh, men killing their wives and, and sometimes their children and sometimes themselves. Um, and we see sort of extreme cases of domestic violence. And, and, and um, in my opinion, this doesn't really help to show um, what domestic violence really is. Not to say that these aren't situations of domestic violence, obviously they are. But they are the extreme minority. Uh, take um, an example, for example, in Italy, uh, about uh, 130 women are killed every year, which is one woman every three days. And that is a relatively low statistical data compared to Europe. But if you look at the statistical data of women uh, affected by violence, it's 14% of women in Italy have had an episode of violence from their partner or ex-partner. So 14% means 
about a woman and a half every 10. So that means that of 20 of your friends, three of them probably have had a, a violent partner and of 20 of your male friends, three of them have probably been violent with their partner. Uh, I have children. Every time I walk into one of their classes and talk with their parents, I know that three of the mothers and three of the fathers have uh, been victims of violence or have been perpetrators. So we're talking about something about our neighbors. I have 20 neighbors, about three of them. Sometimes I've heard something suspicious, sometimes not. But um, so it's something that's all around us. And when we look at violence, the way the media portrays it, we see sort of a monster man and we see um, very often a stereotyped victim, on the other hand. Uh, and that doesn't correspond to our everyday experience. In some ways, it's reassuring, because anybody can say, oh, that's a monster, you know, you just put him away in jail and forget about him. But that's sort of easel, easy. It's very interesting. Like I work, I've been working for the past 10 years in groups with perpetrators, okay? So when there is a fact like this, and we go into our groups, Usually around the 25th of November, there's a lot of talking about violence against women. All these facts come out. and So we discuss it in our groups. And the men say, those men are crazy. They should be just locked up. We should hang them. And you start saying, hey, guys, why are you here? Do you, can you remember that you talked about putting your hands around your partner's neck? Do you remember saying this and that and they slowly make the link but it's so easy you know when when you have sort of a monster figure it's so easy to just keep it outside of yourself and just project that all negative feelings that's why I think uh that what the media does in portraying domestic violence isn't helpful because everybody can just sit there and say oh they're they're animals <laughs> we should just hang them and in the meantime they're telling their wife shut up you know, and they're, and they're not clicking. It's not going together. You know that that behavior and this behavior are actually on a continuum. So I think that we need to look at those behaviors that have to do with uh, psychological violence, that have to do with um, all kinds of different forms of discrimination that happen among society with women, but also within intimate uh, partner relationships. Thank you. Do organizations across Europe work more or less the same regarding to work with perpetrators? Um, or the, are there many cultural differences? There are cultural differences. We, um, our members at WWP, uh, when they become members, they um, subscribe to our guidelines. So uh, we, in our guidelines, we are looking at programs that look at the Istanbul Convention for, um, for the terms, so they're gender-based, uh, they um, hold perpetrators accountable, uh, they are uh, victim-focused uh, uh, and uh, victim-safety-focused. So they have a lot of things in common, but within these aspects that they have in common, they are very diverse. Some programs um, work more on an individual level. Uh, many programs work with um, groups. Uh, 
some programs work in close collaboration with the women's support services and they uh, communicate closely. Other programs have set up their own uh, women's support services that provide um, services for victims and, um, and they have sort of different ways of carrying out the work. Um, some have a more uh, social and cultural as um, sort of uh, approach. Uh, other ones are a little bit more psychological and trauma-oriented. Uh, some are very focused on working with um, different uh, um, institutions within the same uh, setting. Uh, other ones are quite isolated. Some countries have very good sort of support system because this problem has really come out and is really out in the open. Other programs are struggling to keep sort of even basic funding and they are um, in countries where there's very, very little awareness of uh, domestic violence. So within Europe, and that's what makes it so interesting, we have from countries that are just trying to um, take the problem of domestic violence and, 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 and make it more visible to countries that have been working for the past 20 years and are extremely consolidated and, and work very well. So I would say that there's some similarities and a lot of differences. It's all about that you have an annual meeting and that you have a study um, day, or is it uh, is more a than study visit? Yeah, a it's study a, visit. yeah, three days. Three days. Oh, it sounds nice <laughs> and very interesting. Yeah. Um, but do you have uh, other programs um, that you focus on? We have annual themes and we have quite a, a lot of um, interesting topics that we are developing. Uh, this, year top, this year's topic is on accountability and so we are exploring uh, different ways of how perpetrators have to be accountable, programs have to be accountable, men have to be accountable, and um, societies and policies and, and how that works and how we integrate that into our work. Um, we are also, also interested in lobbying at uh, different country levels, but also at a European level. We are interested in networking with other organizations that are working on similar topics. Um, we're interested in, uh, for example, um, furthering our collaboration with um, child protection service, uh, services. Uh, we would like, we need to sort of focus more on the children that are in these households and that often just become invisible. So that's, uh, that's a priority for this year. Uh, immigration and issues around working with perpetrators from different countries and different cultures and um, asylum seekers and refugees and uh, what that means to different countries and programs and women and do, are there, do we need sort of uh, a different attention to that? We're looking into that and we're going to be developing it over the next few years. Um, we're really interested also in reflecting on sexual violence, uh, pornography, and uh, violence, uh, men's uh, sexual violence, um, how we can make that more visible in our programs, how we can also start seeing the links 
and again, sort of uh, bringing it down to something that's more recognizable, uh, working maybe more on the consumer end of prostitution and pornography. Uh, we know because our um, colleagues from Unison in Stockholm have been working over the past few years uh, on um, pornography, uh, what kind of an influence this is having on young boys. Uh, and how, in some ways, pornography is hijacking their sexuality and um, and becoming something that has never been before because of the access that uh, young young boys have to the internet and because of what the pornography uh, industry is promoting as sort of um, accessible. I'm not going to say normal sexuality, but as accessible to sexuality. Um, and um, even in uh, forced prostitution, uh, there are some very interesting. There's some very interesting research that has to do with um, um, often um, the consumers of um, of prostitution. Um, since um, forced prostitution are often um, younger victims and cheaper victims, uh, they're often students and young men that uh, are um, using uh, and, 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 and paying for these services. Uh, and so if, if when, the research has shown that when we explain to these young men that the women that they see on the street often are not even of age and often are not there on their free will, they've been uh, forced into prostitution and what, what is behind making you know, stories and people come alive, uh, that really makes a difference to, to the young men and it sort of changes their approach. So I think there's a ton of work that needs to be done around sort of the consumer end and working with men on, on these themes. And that's, um, in a couple of years, we're gonna be uh, focusing more on that. So we have a, a lot of threads of work. Uh, we're also very focused on trying to provide a European framework for the evaluation of perpetrator programs. Uh, so we have uh, an evaluation toolkit that's called IMPACT that we are uh, gradually rolling out and experimenting now in the UK and in Italy. And eventually we hope to be able to extend it throughout Europe so that we will have sort of one uh, instrument for the evaluation throughout Europe of all our programs when you have your findings after you've done research is it public i'm just thinking about the listener and because i think they will find this very interesting um is it publicly available or only for the members uh it's usually everything is publicly available through our website um because uh whatever of course uh, something like the toolkit is for members but that would be obvious because you would have to have a perpetrator program and be interested in evaluating it within but in general the the um, expert papers the research papers are all available on our website uh, that is work with perpetrators we'll let and find our website yeah this is more about the perpetrator itself in the organizations that are member at wwp 
is the goal recovery or just to prevent them from doing harm or um, give them more knowledge about themselves why they use domestic violence or sexual abuse so is, is the, the question is um what is the aim of the perpetrator programs what are we trying yes. to do with them okay so obviously as thank you, you for <laughs> i was really trying to find my sentence <laughs> Uh, so, um, as you were mentioning, and this is true, we have um, very different perpetrators that come to programs. We have uh, court-mandated perpetrators uh, that are um, sentenced to, to come. We have uh, perpetrators that have been in jail and that are, that are at the end of their um, of serving their time and they can come to the programs. We have programs in jails. Um, and then we have programs uh, with uh, self-referrals, which are men that are not court-mandated, uh, somehow realize that they have a problem and they, um, and they arrive to the program. Now, when we say that they realize they have a problem, we are probably overstating their motivation and determination. They are usually... Um, pushed by somebody. It's either their partner that says, either you do something or I leave. Um, it's a crisis. It's always a crisis, but that's sort of normal because we always ask for help when we're on a crisis. So uh, that wouldn't make a lot of sense. And in some of our programs, we have a sort of a mixed. We have men that come self-referred and men that come also are mandated. And so th there's a variety of different programs. And I would say that our priority is always the safety of victims. So um, safety of victims mean uh, working with the men, holding them accountable, and interrupting their violence. Um, usually the first step is interrupting the physical violence. So I would say that our first uh, objective is safety of women. Second objective is obviously interrupting as soon as possible the physical violence so that the environment is safer for the woman, even if she wants to leave or for whatever, whatever to increase her spaces of freedom. So I'd say that's the third point. Once the violence is in, the physical violence is interrupted, what we're looking at is increasing spaces of freedom for the victim, which means uh, trying to address, trying to consolidate uh, the non-physical uh, uh, non violence, but also trying to expand the vocabulary of the man in terms of different kinds of violence that he's using and that he's not aware of. So um, intimidating behavior, uh, psychological violence, um, low thresholds, uh, lower thresholds of physical violence. Um, when we... When we interview the men at the beginning of the program, very often they will refer to the violence as if it were one single episode that happened. And um, some of it is um, the, um, that they're trying to sort of hide it to not, look good, to not look bad, but very often a lot of the violence that they commit is uh, invisible and is informed by a sense of privilege that they have and of entitlement. Entitlement is a, is a huge theme, a uh, cultural theme uh, with, uh, with men. And, um, and I would probably, if, 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 my, if my audience if I were addressing uh, a different kind of conversation with men, I would probably frame this differently because um, Men's perception is that of being victims. 
So if I want to talk to men so that they'll listen, <laughs> I usually talk about that, of the fact that they feel victims, like they're the victims of the situation. Um, and it's a very real feeling that they have, and it's a very sort of painful uh, uh, situation. They feel that they aren't recognized, they feel that their needs aren't met, they feel that um, the efforts that they're doing don't pay off, they feel that they're not appreciated, and that, that takes them to a very sort of sad place within themselves, uh, a place that... Um, uh, also combines with another male characteristic that has to do with sort of toughing it out. If you're a man, you tough it out. If things aren't good, you just you just don't sort of sweat the small stuff. You don't uh, complain that, oh, that hurt my feelings. That's a girly thing. But actually, the feelings are hurt. And then, and, and you just sort of accumulate, accumulate, and accumulate. And then sometimes that lashes out uh, with violent behaviors. So it's, um, it's working much more on these aspects, uh, using a language. And um, in most of our programs, in many of our programs, we work with groups. And working in groups means that you can hear other men's experiences and see how similar they are to you. And it's easier to see how certain things uh, don't really pan out and are not making much sense when somebody else says them. It's harder to see your own uh, issues. So um, I would say that uh, most programs will be uh, working around these lines of um, promoting safety for the victims, interrupting physical violence, expanding the knowledge that the men have of different forms of violence and trying to find ways so that they become more visible and more accountable and more responsible for their behaviors, get to know themselves better because actually one of the things that we have to do is actually recognize that what they say, I got angry and lashed out, uh, often has to do with feelings, with soft stuff that they are not really willing to acknowledge and um, they have trouble recognizing. And so helping to recognize that because that can lead to different strategies instead of violence to have fulfilling relationships. Thank you. Are there events coming up? We are going to have our annual workshop second week of October. Uh, we are going to be participating in a few conferences. Next one is in Stockholm. Um, Do you go to the WAVE conference as well? We probably, yeah, we will be at the WAVE conference. Uh, that's at the end of October. Yeah, we, we are thinking about uh, supporting our members in doing sort of a test on information sharing to um, explain what perpetrator programs do on the one hand and on the other hand uh, address men directly. So it, it's not exactly a campaign but it's uh, promoting information throughout our membership and it's something that they've been asking us to do and that hopefully will be happening towards the end of the year. So we're, we're quite busy. When you are old and are looking back to your life, what do you want to have accomplished? It's more personal. 
question, but what is the desired outcome of your work? I, on, on this account, I could pretty easily die tomorrow in the sense that I've been working, sort of promoting social change and working to end violence against women for my life. I think I have a lot to show for it. Um, and I'm, I, I, I think that I've done what I could and I, and I continue doing what I can. And I actually think that I've expanded the level of influence that I can have in doing so. So I think that every day matters and counts <clears throat> and the projects that we are working towards uh, are making a difference. Uh, so um, I think that what I wanted to do and what I have achieved and what I am achieving are very much in line. Plus I have two wonderful kids, 13 and 16, ah. that are also... <laughs> we have one of 13 too. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that are also growing and exploring the world. And so I think that that's another very important piece of um, the things that I have um, achieved and that, that will go out in the world after when I'm, when I'm old and, <laughs> uh, and, uh, and looking back uh, to my life. So I really think that's beautiful if you can say that already about your life that, well, you have, please stay alive, but <laughs> you... <laughs> feel at peace with what you have accomplished that's really oh, I think that's a really beautiful thing to say about your life um, uh, I have to look at my questions now because we skipped a few because that's so that it was really nice of you that you already answered them that was really <laughs> for me <laughs> are there pressing issues that you face within the organization about a program or about uh, legislation or something that like that? Uh, absolutely. I think that um, the first problem is that violence against women is uh, one of the most severe violation of human rights that is today, that the world is facing today. But it continues to be totally second class. I mean, it should be first on all governments' priorities on the, at the EU level, at the single country levels, and it's not. It's underfunded. Uh, women's service, support services are continuously struggling to maintain services for victims. Um, and uh, this, so I think I'd say that the first is a political issue in taking domestic violence to the forefront uh, and adequately working on support for victims, prevention, uh, perpetrator programs, um, services for, for victims, for perpetrators, for families, um, and uh, for countries to be investing much more because we know that the costs of violence are really, really high. So actually with major investments that would actually turn out to save money in the long run. So that's, I would say, number one priority. Number two priority is safety of victims. Again, throughout Europe, we see uh, some countries have, um, they may have a panel code that are adequate to answer, but they almost never are applied as they should be which leaves women uh, vulnerable to violence. And it actually, we lose a chance to 
uh, hold the perpetrators accountable and do something about it. Every time we condone violence, uh, or and we know that the percentages of women that press charges are very, very, very low. In Italy, 93% of women do not press charges. Um, so we really have a lot of work to do in terms of, and, and the, um, uh, the, um, the turnout rate, I mean, when women do press charges, very often uh, we, you don't arrive to uh, the, the men actually uh, having any consequences for the violence they've uh, committed. So there's an attrition rate that's very high. So again, we need, uh, in some cases, we need to work also on the penal code, but often what we need to change is the judicial system of how these situations are um, are dealt with because we are shortcoming both men and women because if you go and interview men in jails that have killed their partners they are often saying I wish somebody had stopped me I mean it's not only a question of uh, obviously there's there's that priority but sometimes often women won't press charges because they're trying to protect the men and it's really important that we have systems in place for which you know that what you're doing and what is being done is stopping the men. And then, I mean, it's not, it, it is important that there is sort of a, uh, adequate uh, consequences. But what is really important is that the women are safe. And that is often not the case. Women press charges in Italy. We've had more than one case of women pressing charges more and more time. And, and, and they're not being protection uh, measures being put in place. So I would say that that's another really important uh, uh, priority throughout uh, the different uh, governments and uh, countries in, uh, in Europe. But are they, the perpetrator, is he then sorry more for himself or is it a sincere wish that someone had stopped them uh, for empathy for the victim? That's a very good question. Um, I think that obviously when you are locked up for life in prison, your future is very grim. Uh, I think in many cases there is also um, a sincere uh, regret for what they have done because um, there is a very um, important relationship with this person and that is not the outcome that they would have wanted for that relationship. So um, I'm not sure in all cases, but definitely in, in many cases, um, there's a lot of uh, self-pity, but there's also regret for what has been done. Um, when I look at what changed my view about abuses, that was a book written by Donald Dutton. Um, but do you have a book or a documentation that um, changed the way you look at things in your, regarding to your work? Uh, it was more a personal story than a book. Oh, exciting. <laughs> the first time that I was exposed uh, to a group of perpetrators was when a colleague of mine uh, convinced me to go to Boston at uh, Emerge. Uh, where there's one of the first programs for perpetrators. Uh, and um, so I wasn't very convinced at the time I was working with victims. Um, but, I, you know, 
Merges in Boston. I got the free trip to the States. And so I said, ah, what the hell? I'll do the perpetrator. <laughs> Uh, as long as I don't have to work with them, then I'll, I'll do it. So uh, that was the first time. And so I, I was still was very unconvinced about working with perpetrators. But what really shocked me was that when I was in the room with these men, I was terrorized. I was terrorized walking down the halls of Emerge. And that fear had nothing to do with the real situation I was in. I was in no danger. The men were sort of normal guys, except for one, but most of them were normal guys. But it wasn't, there was no real threat uh, that caused that fear. What caused that fear was I realized the ghost of the men of all the women I'd worked with. So I was within myself. I was haunted by this ghost, very scary, huge, um, that was there even when he wasn't, uh, that was um, influencing how I felt about the world, about the men that were there and the world in general. Um, so that was a real, a real eye-opener, which I didn't do anything about because... I was still really scared and I wasn't convinced at all. So I just went back. Uh, partner, working partner that I went there decided that it was too early to work on perpetrators. And I said, fine. And I just went on my merry way and worked another 10 years with victims. Then um, something changed when I was pregnant with my second child. I discovered that uh, I, I knew I was born to be mother of a girl. And so when I had my first daughter, I was fine. Didn't give a thought to it. When I discovered that I was pregnant with uh, my son, I panicked. I said, I don't know how to do this. Uh, I don't know how to be a mother of a boy. And uh, I connected the dots to this sort of ghost that was a haunting haunting within me and that had to do with the many years I'd worked with victims and I realized that if I wanted to relate to my son and to men and to his uh, becoming a man in a different way I had to do something about those ghosts and so um, I started reading and, 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 and um, discovering more about the world of boys and um, socialization of boys and, uh, and how do you grow a boy and boys will be boys and wild boys and uh, good boys and just everything. I just did this total full immersion in boy in sort of just really cool and young and energetic boyness you know just sort of trying to um understand everything that goes on with these wonderful uh young boys while they're growing up and what happens to them for when then they are socialized into them becoming also horrible men in some cases and um and so then i started working with other groups of men uh, on campaigns uh, for changing masculinities. So there's some groups of men in Italy that work on sort of the social and cultural aspects. So we launched the White Ribbon campaign here in Italy. 
Uh, we had Michael Kaufman come from Canada. We did an amazing work, uh, very, very little funds, but we had this huge white ribbon campaign. And so I actually started finding allies in, in men that were working against violence against women. And from there, um, I, um, I started also viewing uh, the idea of working with perpetrators in a different way. It was working with, partner, with men, partners, against violence. It was training men in the experience I'd had on violence against women. It was using the experience that I'd had uh, with so many victims of violence to really do something to change the direct source of the violence. So, um, so they often people ask me, I mean, you worked with victims for so many years. How on earth can you work with a perpetrator? Um, I just, I, I don't get it. How is that possible? And uh, having worked with both for quite some time, um, I think that one of the aspects that you may not realize uh, so much when you're when you're working with victims is just how challenging it is to always be in a situation in which you are not uh, you're you're dealing with feelings of um, being impotent uh, of not being able to act because what happens doesn't depend on what the person does but on what somebody else does and if they come home in a mood or in another mood and uh, just trying to find indirect ways of counteracting action and the women feel helpless and you feel helpless so you're working with this very strong degree of helplessness when you're working with men, you're not as helpless because he's the one that's doing the acting and, and, and the behavior. And you are trying to intervene directly, uh, working with um, the, the, the man. So it, you are in a, in a position of better action than not being helpless. So actually now I think it'd be really hard for me to go back to working for with victims just because of this level of helplessness that you have to continuously struggle with. So that's sort of what changed my perspective and also the personal work that I had to do to be able to shift into this sort of different um, paradigm. I really like the psychology behind it because I, well, I, I can have a think about it. If you work with victims, it's also a loss of energy because you are, the, well, not in control. So I really, well, thank you for sharing that with us. <laughs> um, well, we reached the end of the show and um, I have just one question. I don't know if you have one, but do you have a quote that um, or a book that any one of the listeners should read? Um, well, uh, if it's a book related to the themes that we've been talking to, I would definitely suggest Alan Jenkins, uh, Becoming Ethical. Wonderful book on working with perpetrators. <laughs> and if there were one book that I would suggest reading, it's uh, this book. It's just really uh, a marvelous piece of work. Alessandra, thank you so much for being a guest on the show. I was really honored. And, thank you for having me. <laughs> and uh, talking about WWP, that was just great. Thank you for sharing your knowledge of working with perpetrators. 
It is a field I always found very interesting, especially the psychology behind perpetrators. And I'm glad that you took the time to share the vision or work with perpetrators with us. And I want to thank the listener too for tuning in. I hope you'll enjoy learning from other professionals just as I do and that this information will help you on your journey. You can find the show notes, links and references at anianaloyga.com. But because my name is quite difficult, you can also go to pavepodcast.com and you will go to the same website. We will be back with another episode of the Pave Podcast. If you like this episode, please give it a rating in the iTunes store. You can also check us out at pavepodcast.com where you can find the show notes, more about the guests on the show, more about women's rights, information about my personal life story and how we can overcome adversity. While you're there, make sure you sign up for the newsletter. Until the next episode of PAVE Podcast, let's work together and rise like a phoenix.